This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. One observation I've had over time, and maybe you've noticed this too, so when it comes to the issue of alcohol, alcohol tends to make itself known, doesn't it? It, it, it tends to make its presence known and felt. It doesn't usually stay quiet and off on the peripheral, does it? I mean, in our culture, our local culture, you can spot it everywhere, right? It's, it's part of our weddings, and it's part of our family gatherings. It's part of our holidays. It, it gets its own special signs and windows, its own special menus and restaurants. It gets its own special aisles in the store, right? We name our sports teams after it, our stadiums after it. And if you're a country music fan like me, breathe it in. It's okay. I don't need anybody throwing rotten tomatoes at me, but anyways... We fill our songs with it, don't we? We do, we do. We fill our songs with it. Alcohol is not on the peripheral with our local culture. It is far closer to center stage, center stage. And so it is part of your world whether you drink or you don't drink. And living just north of the beer capital of the world, claim to fame right there for you, right? And knowing this congregation well, I know that for many of you in here, it's not on the peripheral in your life either. Many of you have have worked at Miller or your parents worked at Miller Brewing Company. Uh, You've you've sold it in your store. You've served it at a restaurant. You brewed it in your basement. You know, I don't know. Uh, Alcohol is a part of your family gatherings, your weddings, your sporting events, holidays, and your songs, isn't it? It's part of your world, and it shows. It shows. And for some of us, it's taken center stage, or taken center stage at times. It's making its presence known. And for others, you hate to admit it, but you know things have moved here. They've moved from you getting buzzed to you getting drunk to you being addicted. It's happened. It's happened. And now your life revolves around those hours in the evenings and on the weekends and what you get to drink during those times when you get to drink it. And it shows. Because alcohol makes its presence known. And it's not just in the sights and smells but it's in the destruction and in the DUIs and in the pain that it is causing to those around you, especially to the ones that you love the most. Friends, the reality is, whether we like it or not, is that from Noah until now, alcohol has been party to some of the most destructive decisions and patterns in our lives and in the lives of our families. In 2018, uh, the World Health Organization, which I know is controversial these days, but the World Health Organization <laughs> released a study. One in 20 deaths resulted from the harmful use of alcohol in the study. It was Sink that in for just a second here. One in 20 deaths around the globe 
That's 5% of all the deaths, of all the destructive forces raging in our world. Alcohol accounts for 5% of the deaths with regard to harmful usage. Talk about a sobering reality. And more recently and more locally, this year, in the midst of the lockdown, as we saw people inventing quarantinis and happy hours suddenly moved from five to three to nine, right? As we saw demand for the product just soar. As your pastor, all right, watching all that unfold, it was quite obvious that we had something we needed to talk about. We had an issue that we, as a church, need to address. So today, I want us to go to the scriptures with three questions. Three questions about how Christians should deal with drinking. And so that we take our cues from our Heavenly Father's word on how to handle this issue and not from our world or from our past or from our family, but from the ultimate authority for faith and practice. That's where we want to go. And, and as we do that, I believe that whether you, you don't drink or whether you drink or you're getting drunk, you will have reason in this sermon to sit up straight, to lean in, and to listen. And if you're listening in this morning, and you're someone who, you know, maybe you've been curious about Christianity, but you're not, you know, real certain on this, it might not surprise you to hear a Christian concerned about drinking. I get that, okay? But Bear with me, because there's a reason that we talk about this. There's a reason why a Christian wants to come under the authority of the Bible, and it's not because we just want some kind of you know, healthier or more successful or better or kinder life. There's actually a much bigger reason for it, although, yes, you, your life very well might get better on the outside when you put biblical practices into practice. But the reason why we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, obey the word of God is not for that. It's for one specific reason. Love. That's why. It's our affection for Jesus that we obey his word. That's why. And so in dealing with a competing affection around the use of alcohol, our love for Christ becomes all the more important. And so here with our first question, I want to raise it. And this is the natural beginning point for a conversation on this issue. And it's quite simply this question. Is a Christian allowed to drink? Is a Christian allowed to drink? This is a natural question in our culture and presently with some of the destructive forces surrounding it. And I would bet that many of you, at some point or another, ask this question, right? Right? So... What do the scriptures have to say here? Well, if, if we think about this question in the context of words, we would find that the Greek word for oinos, which means wine, is found throughout the scriptures. It's found across them. Literally, you will find the equivalent of this word uh, or this word from Genesis to Revelation. And you also find the word oinoflugi. Oinoflugi, which sounds like something a junior higher could have a lot of fun with, you know. But uh, in several places, you'll find this word too, and it means to flow with wine. Right? It's the common way that we would typically say drunk, and we typically render it that way. 
So let's look at a couple of these instances. First, we have Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This proverb here, all right, it's painting a picture of wine in a positive light. It's a, wine was a, a typical commodity in an agricultural-based nation. And it's painted in a positive light. It's something that God blesses when someone's honoring him with their giving. All right, now, this is a wisdom saying. This is not a promise, but this is how things typically work in our world. And the similar kind of blessing as this here, a similar one, is cited in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 11, all right? Now, on the other hand, though, this isn't all that the Proverbs have to say on this issue. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 23, we're warned against being found in the company of drunks and gluttons, both placed on the same level there, by the way, right? And we have in this passage a warning that uh, drunkenness leads to poverty. And being found in, in a company of drunks leads to poverty, the opposite, then, of the blessing we just saw. In Proverbs 31, though, we have one more, maybe a little bit more famous. Proverbs 31, verse 4 says, It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Maybe you've heard that one before. But we need to read it with verse 6 too. That's connected right in. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. And wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty. And remember their misery no more. What are we to make with this wise saying? Should we actually bar leaders from drinking and hand it out to the poor instead? Well, if we did, we'd actually be missing the point. We'd be missing the point. The point is that if a king charged with upholding justice forgets, then he'll pervert justice for those who need it most. And so if somebody around here is going to need to forget, it's going to be the person who is having their rights denied. Well, that's the point, but alcohol is the subject and a warning for those who lead and are to carry out the justice called for here and in the following verses. But this is far from the only passage that talks about this issue and brings up alcohol with leaders. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 and 9, we see it brought up again. And then in Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 7, and then Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, we see that drunkenness and addiction to wine is specifically listed as a disqualifying factor for elders, deacons. Deaconesses, older men and older women who are discipling younger men and younger women. If drunkenness was and is an issue for someone in one of those roles... They would need to step back. Now, is this only an issue for leaders? No. Ephesians 5.18, we have a call on all Christians to not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which means reckless living, right? But to be filled with the Spirit. See, when you're drunk, alcohol is in charge. And it's influencing how you walk and how you talk and how you think, right? 
But brother or sister, that's not to be the case for you. No, you are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. He is to be the one in charge, influencing how you walk and how you talk and how you think. And it should show in every one of those aspects. Now, for the sake of time here, I'm going to skip the biblical examples of wine being used for medicinal purposes or examples of the horrible choices that people made while they were drunk in the Bible, and there's numerous examples of that. And I'm also going to skip the places in the Psalms and so forth, how it talks about making the heart glad and and all that, right? But I can't skip Jesus. I can't skip Jesus. John chapter 2, we have a story of Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Some of you may or may not have remembered this story. In the story, there's a crisis that occurs. Do you remember the crisis? The wine runs out. This is a crisis in that day, in that culture. This is like, you know, somebody at your wedding and having the caterer there, and they forgot a hundred meals, right? This is, a, this is a crisis. And Jesus decides to respond, And he performs a miracle of turning water into wine, the equivalent of 600 bottles of the most amazing wine ever. That is the entire grocery section at, at, at your local Piggly Wiggly, okay? 600 bottles. I couldn't put all those up here. I'd, you know, I'd get in trouble or something would break or whatever. But picture that image. And although the story is not about wine, in fact, it's about how the best has now arrived in Jesus Christ, you can't miss the fact that Jesus just made a whole lot of alcohol for people to drink. Now, some who have, over the years, disagreed with drinking altogether looked at this passage, and they have gone through what I would classify as a gymnastical feat of interpretation to say that Jesus didn't really make wine for people to drink. But that interpretation simply won't do. Simply put, it doesn't square with the story. It doesn't square with the problem. It doesn't square with the comparisons in the story. And in fact, you actually have to read something into that story in order to be able to get there. But most of all, and finally, it does not square with the simple words of the story. Here in the passage, the word for wine, oinos, is the same word we saw everywhere else. And as we looked at it, with regard to alcohol, whether positive or negative, it's the same word. So where do all of these scripture passages, where do they leave us with our question? They leave us simply here. The scriptures take us here, in fact, that simply stated, a Christian is allowed to drink, but they are not to become drunk, addicted, and I'd add, so forth. A Christian is not allowed to drink alcohol, but they are to be, uh, I'm sorry, they are allowed to drink alcohol, but they are not to become drunk or addicted. That's an answer that squares from cover to cover with the scriptures, Not just the ones that we saw above, but across the board. In fact, as you look at the scriptures and examine them, this question that we're raising about whether or not a Christian is allowed to drink at all, let me tell you, it's actually not a grand debate that you will find within the Bible's pages. Did you know that? You will not actually find lengthy discourses about whether or not a Christian should drink. 
That in in and of itself is actually a very telling issue because although it wasn't a massive debate in the biblical time, it has become a heated debate in our time. Why? That's the question. Why? See, because although the truth hasn't changed, our circumstances have in some very key ways. First of all, in biblical times, alcohol content of beer or wine did not have the same heights they do today. It's believed that by comparative standards, you could achieve somewhere between 4 and 10% alcohol volume. But they didn't have yeasts that could withstand higher volumes. Today, though, 10% volume is a starting point for most wines. And let me tell you, in the good old U.S. of A., we are most certainly not diluting our wines as most biblical practices and sources called for doing, are we? Second, not only has uh, alcohol become much stronger, the sizes have changed too. Uh, I don't know if we've noticed this or not, but you know, if you think about McDonald's, in 1955, a 7-ounce soda is what they sold. A 7-ounce soda, right? In 1990, 12 ounces was the kid's size. And of course, that skips over the Supersize me, 42-ounce soda. Remember that? And then it got like barred out or something like that. Now we're at 32 ounces, right, is the large. I picked this up this week. Think about it, gang. We are consuming everything in larger amounts, including alcohol. And we don't even notice it. We don't notice it. It's bigger, it's stronger, and it is far more prevalent as seen in teen drinking and in many other whites. Gang, these are red flags for us as we look at this issue of a Christian dealing with drinking, and we shouldn't ignore them. Instead, we should recognize that it is the dangers here that have fueled the debate and so forth. Right? And so as we look at this, if any one of us chooses to drink, which we're free to do, then we should see that the biblical warnings in Scripture about drunkenness are actually being leveled at us. We should be open to the whole counsel of God's word on this issue. And we should have our eyes wide open to what's happening with what we're consuming. And we should never, ever think that the warnings were really meant for someone else. Should we? So when we consider that, Perhaps our question, all right, although a fair one, uh, you know, of whether or not a Christian is allowed to drink, a question many a teenager has asked, right, especially if we're asking that question with a tone of looking for license, maybe that question is not the best question. In fact, if we're hung up on whether or not drinking is a sin, perhaps we've missed the larger point altogether, Listen, I don't want to be dismissing of Christian freedom or wanting to undermine the sin of drunkenness and the, the ease and danger of addiction in a culture like ours. But having understood that, are we still missing the larger point here as Christians? Need I remind us of Christianity 101? Your life is no longer about you. This is not about you. You belong to God. 
Your affections for him should redefine all the others. All the others. Perhaps the best question here then is something, with something that we're free to do is a question that I wonder if we've ever even bothered asking. It's this. How do we drink to the glory of God? How do we drink to the glory of God? You, you might be wondering, is that even possible? And what does that mean if it is? Follow me. Take a look at one last passage with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Turn there. In this passage, we don't have a one-for-one comparison with our issue. But we do have a discussion on Christian freedom. And we have something that's surprisingly close here in the church of Corinth. And here what we have is a piece of food. Not drink, but food. That was being hotly debated with two uh, opposite sides, two factions that have formed around a a debate about this particular food because of the issues and the sinful practices that were surrounding the food. And the food was meat that had been offered as part of a ritual sacrifice in a pagan temple. Temples like the one in Corinth to the Greek goddess Aphrodite that uh, was not innocent whatsoever. It was said that at this temple that there was 1,000 prostitutes who had sold themselves in the name of this religion. See, there was a whole culture of sin that surrounded a piece of food. There's some resemblance here. But one faction in this church had responded when they looked at this issue, and they they said, it's just food, all right? And you are free in Christ to eat, so what's the problem? This was food, in fact, that actually you could get at a discount, and you know how we feel about getting a deal, right? The two-for-one special has always been a good special, Meanwhile, others in the church, they looked at this issue and they said that by eating this, you are participating in a whole system of sin. So the church was divided. And here the apostle Paul spends three chapters developing an argument on Christian freedom. And he finishes this argument in verse 23. He starts this out and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not All things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This saying, all all things were lawful, this seems to be a slogan that uh, some people in Corinth were using to say, they're free to eat. Paul is saying, yes, you have Christian freedom, and, and you have it here with what you eat. It's present, but it's not always good. It's not always good. The higher test is actually, is it lawful and helpful? or constructive to a particular end? Is it helpful or constructive to a particular end that we'll see? Verse 25, though, he moves forward with these two examples. He sees, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, uh, you know, if you're not sinning and, and there's not a lot of other factors here, buy it. Enjoy it. Even if it's with someone who isn't a Christian. Verse 28, though. But. But if someone, an unbeliever maybe, or, or, or a fellow Christian believer, 
says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. Why? Why? He goes on, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Friends, this is the helpful and the constructive check to freedom, and it comes in here. See, it's not just about you and your freedom to drink or whatever. There is a higher issue than our freedom that is at stake and can be at stake here. And that stirs the natural question in the mature believer. And Paul postulates those two questions here. He he postulates them saying, "For, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks? In other words, if I'm okay, why abstain? Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why enjoy the freedom? Why give up the freedom? For God's glory. That's why. See, glorifying God is putting the weight of priority in my decisions on what God values. What is his priority in this situation? And that kind of giving glory to God, placing the priority on what he values, that should go right down to how I eat and drink and everything else. So verse 32, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, right? It's not about us, but that of many that they may be saved. This is the ultimate good that we are aiming for and the reason why we should be willing to sacrifice our rights, our freedoms, and our pleasures. And he finishes with this call. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Friends, how do we drink to the glory of God? By doing so in ways that would promote and not hinder the gospel's advancement. By doing so in ways that would promote and not hinder the gospel's advancement. That's what's at stake. And that shows us, friends, how we can know if we need to lay down our rights, if we need to lay down our freedom. That aside from sinning, how how can I know if I need to set drinking aside? Well, is it getting in the way of the gospel? Is it getting in the way of the gospel? See, the word offense in the passage, it can also be translated like stumbling block. This is offense like an obstacle is an offense, right? This is setting something in the way of somebody else who's on their way to Jesus. And so when it comes to our freedom with drinking or some other legitimate Christian freedom, if it puts up an obstacle to someone else coming to know Jesus or tempts a fellow Christian to sin, then don't touch it. Glorify God instead by honoring and pursuing what matters more. That's not to say that if someone else just doesn't like what you're doing, that you have to give it up. That's not it. No, it's for the sake of the gospel's advancement in someone's life. Then we're willing to give up our freedom. There, there's no contest. If the gospel is pitted against my freedom or my preference or my pocketbook, it is to win every time. And if that's what's needed, that's what we are to do. 
when I was headed off to college, I um, was headed off across the country with a guy I didn't know very well. Uh, we were both 18 at the time. Uh, his name was Dane, and we were driving to school, and, uh, and along the way, we were uh, planning, and we ended up stopping at this little motel out in the boonies of Wyoming, all right? And, uh, and we get there, and there was not much going on in this town, but the, the, the motel had a, a restaurant-slash-lounge that was attached to it. And so I said, hey, well, let's, let's eat here, you know, then we don't have to go back out. And supposedly they had the best burger in town. Well, anyways, we get in there and um, we're eating and I'm looking at my new friend and I'm noticing he looks really uncomfortable, looks really uncomfortable. And finally he says, can we just get out of here? Can we just get out of here? So we got the check and left. And a little while later, he starts to unpack his story. And I find out that, that Dane, that his parents had gotten divorced, and at 15, he'd gone to live with his dad, and he was traveling with his dad on sales, and, and he'd stay in motels like the one like this, and they'd eat at lounges like the one like this, and, and it was in those places that his dad had taught him how to drink. And it was in those places that his dad had taught him how to sleep with women, women twice his age and would participate and bring him into the most lured of practices. And so just being in that place was bringing up all kinds of memories and so forth in his mind that he had been trying to leave behind. Gang, for many of us, the backdrop of our life prior to Jesus and even into Jesus at times is alcoholism, the bar scene, clubs, and so forth. So church, we need to take care with our freedoms that we are not cavalier and that whenever needed for gospel advancement, we sacrifice them. After all, that's what Christ did for you and I. He glorified his heavenly father by laying down his rights, his freedoms, his glory, and his life that we could be saved. But I wonder, do we recognize that God counted my neighbor's salvation as being worth Jesus' death? Do we, do we recognize God counted my neighbor's salvation, not just mine, not just yours, but the salvation of others? that we don't even know yet, as being worth Jesus' death. It wasn't just you and I he died for. So are we willing to set aside our freedom when needed for the advancement of the gospel? If so, it's a key part of how we glorify God in our freedom. But what does all this look like? Our third question, what does this look like? Well, to answer that, let's come back to the beginning and consider this, whether you don't drink, drink or getting drunk? First, if you don't drink, what does this look like? If that's you, I want you to know that's a good choice. I want to affirm that. But I also want to encourage you, don't let the discomfort that you feel from somebody else making a different choice here pull you away. Don't let that discomfort push you away from others, because sometimes that's what happens, right? Right? We feel uncomfortable, and so we just pull away. 
Others of us, you know, at times with this kind of thing, we can pull away because we've confused sobriety with salvation or rule following with salvation. And we can get fixated on that rather than the person and pointing that person to Jesus. And even if you're someone who doesn't drink precisely because of the addiction involved and you're now a follower of Jesus and sober, praise God, although you can't ever put one foot back in that direction without being tempted You can be humbly open about your story as a way of helping others find a way out too. See, we can all play a role in glorifying God in this area. Second, for those of you who choose to drink, that's a fine choice. You're free to do so as long as you're within the boundaries that God established. And for what it's worth, I'd like to point out that besides medicinal purposes, friends, the only places the Bible ever seems to truly paint drinking of alcohol in a positive light is with legitimate celebrations of something good. Nonetheless, be wise and free unless your freedom gets in the way of the gospel. See, when you have a beer and you don't feel like being a good parent anymore, recognize alcohol is getting in the way. When you need a a drink to be able to take the edge off of work, you need to recognize alcohol is getting in the way. When your spouse is struggling with getting drunk and other addictions and you're still drinking, recognize alcohol is getting in the way. And when you're a new Christian and all your non-Christian friends keep convincing you to come out and, and party with them so they see no change in you, recognize alcohol is getting in the way. Gang, advancing the gospel has to be more important of a priority than your freedom. If you're going to be glorifying God and what you eat and drink. Let's be frank, though. For others, that's not you. So what if you're getting drunk? Listen, you may very well be a Christian and it be utterly stuck in addiction. It's true. And if that's you, you will never conquer it on your own. You need help of God and others to become free. And that starts today. Starts right now. Right now, today. What does that look like? It looks like your spouse going home ahead of you and pouring everything out and you checking into a treatment program this week and starting to get the help that you need and the help that your family needs and beginning a lifelong journey to freedom or beginning it again. And if this is the case in your family, listen, today for you, you are to lay out the drastic steps that it's going to take for you to get help and for them to get help. You have to be willing to force the hand and ask, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? Listen, the scripture tell us when it comes to temptation, one thing, flee, flee from it. Because God knows that this temptation will eat you for breakfast. You will never manage this problem. You can only flee from it. So friend, speak up. If you are utterly stuck or still struggling, speak up. That's how you glorify God here and prioritize the gospel's advancement with others. It's in saying something. It's like being the person in Paul's example that points out the connection. It is in having the humility to say, it's a problem for me. And if you do that, you take the first step, the first baby step to saying to others, follow me as I start to follow Christ.
And in fact, church, if you're a mature Christian, whether you don't drink or you drink, you should be able to humbly look at others in this area and say, watch me. Watch me. Follow my example as I follow Christ's example. But can you say that? Can you say that in your life and your freedom and in how you're pointing others to Jesus Christ? Because friends, it is Christ that they need. It was Jesus that we needed. And it was Jesus who not only gave us the example of treasuring the glory of God by prioritizing what his heavenly father prioritized of rescuing the lost, binding up the broken heart and setting the captive free. But it was Jesus who called his church to lay down their lives for the very same call. So friends, we have freedom. But glorify God in your freedom by valuing the gospel's work in the lives of those around you. And as you do that, you will shout through your example, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need your work in our lives. God, we need to be humble before you and recognize that it is not by our might that these things are accomplished in our lives. It is through your strength. And so, Father, for those of us this morning who are in desperate need of your strength to humble ourselves, Father, would you do that work? Would you do the convicting work so that we may take our first step or our next step, or our hundredth step with this, that we would be humble people in your sight because, God, we know that when we are a people who is on our knees and looking to you for our strength, then we are strong because we have your strength. So, Lord, may we be a humble people who recognize our weakness and claim the strength of Jesus. Amen.